Hello and welcome to Music and Casts, a podcast series discussing topics in and around the field of music education. Today I have with me Dr. Dave Cosmina. Dave is professor of music at Ohio Northern University, where he teaches trumpet, theory, composition, arranging, brass ensemble, and jazz studies. Dave has degrees in music education, composition, and trumpet performance from the University of Toledo, Ohio University, and the Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music, respectively. He's recorded over 25 albums as a jazz and classical artist and as a specialist in early jazz, and has performed at well over 100 jazz festivals all over the world. An educator to the core, Dave just recorded and published all 32 of the Ohio Music Education Class C Contest Solos for Trumpet, available on YouTube on his www.trumpetdoctor.com channel. In this episode, Dave and I will be discussing the world of jazz as it relates to the musician and music educator. Dave, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, not a problem. I, I really wanted to get you on here once I started this uh, podcast series. I thought, man, if there's anyone that knows the world of jazz, it's Dave. And part of that's a, a personal thing for me. My my first experience as a jazz performer was in the good old Jazz 2 ensemble there at Ohio University. You know, having gone through the high school uh, program, never doing jazz. I mean, other than seeing it, you know, in some of the elements and the, uh, the other wind band literature or, or even marching band charts and things where, you know, the elements of jazz existed. But as far as actually sitting in a jazz ensemble, that was my first experience. And I will say for me, you made it just very uh, educational. You're, you could see the passion that you had for the music. Um, and that has always stuck with me. So w- when I think of jazz and jazz performance and, and having seen you perform and whatnot, um, I always think of you. So I, I, when I was doing this podcast, I was like, I've got to get Dave on here. If, if there's someone passionate about jazz, it's Dave. So, Well, thanks for those <laughs> kind words in that introduction. And in fact, I, I remember that ensemble very well. I remember when Matt James uh, asked me to start the second jazz ensemble. There used to be just a, one jazz ensemble. And Matt said, you know, we should do two. And uh, so we started, we had jazz one and then we started jazz two. And I remember you hanging out in that trombone section and uh, our buddy Andrew Stonerock on lead alto. And, and that was a really fun band. We had such a good time. It was. Um, it's and, a... Yeah. And, and so you bring up a really interesting point that a lot of people that are involved in music, oftentimes their first exposure to jazz is really um, a big band playing in a, in a large, approximately 20 piece jazz ensemble. Right. That's a pretty common experience. What's interesting about that is, uh, in the world of gigging, the the large twenty piece big band is has has slowly started to disappear. It's not gone by any means. I mean, it's still out there, but it's not it's not the main vehicle that it used to be. Right. However, it still is one of the primary vehicles for for teaching jazz, and, and I think one of the better vehicles to to get students and exposure to it, and to get students thinking about what it means to sort of be in an ensemble you know, and what working together in a sort of stylistic idiom is like. Yeah, definitely. So looking at what, uh, just kind of jazz in general, why is it important for students to be aware of jazz, whether they're just general music students or they're in the instrumental program or in the vocal program? I always think about this because I remember back in high school, my French teacher had a joke with me because she had a student one time that wouldn't believe her that you could play jazz on the piano. He w- he was convinced <laughs> that that you could only play jazz on the saxophone. Now, granted, he wasn't sure. a 
a student of music or anything. He was just in her, one of her French classes. But knowing that I was involved in music, she used to always joke about that with me. She thought it was funny that he thought you could only play jazz on the saxophone. So why is it important for us to be aware of jazz? Well, there's a lot of reasons to be aware of jazz. You know, when we think about music education just in general, you know, we tend to start students on all the foundations of Western music. And primarily what you're learning is the, the music of the European masters. And you're, you're learning your works by Schumann and Bach and Brahms and, and everybody else. And, and, and there's just tons and tons and tons and tons of terrific composers in that tradition. But jazz is important because it is our music. It is the music of the Americas. All right. And it is one of our great gifts to the world. And I have friends all over the world that, uh, are just in love with jazz. It's really interesting when I get to hang out with some of my European friends or, you know, friends over in Japan or other places. And, and they just, they are nuts about jazz. And the fact that it's such a, a free tradition in terms of uh, the ability to express yourself and the, the ability to, to approach things differently. So, so jazz is an American art form. So it's really important that we learn that. And the other thing that's also important about it is jazz is, is really one of the seeds of almost all American popular styles of music. I right. say what we just—I say we just watched the uh, that Ken Burns jazz documentary. Uh, I mm -hmm. watched it with my dad when it was available on one of the streaming uh, networks, and it was kind of great for me. For I, I've had a jazz history class, and I've played some jazz, but my dad doesn't have a huge musical background in terms of of the study of it, and it was kind of great watching that with him and to see how his appreciation of the world of jazz grew. Uh, there were a lot of things he didn't realize about it, and there were a lot of things I didn't realize about it, especially about the intricacies of, of how it developed, and you were talking about it being a, a truly American art form, and uh, seeing how that developed and, and some of the, the crazy things that had to happen for that to occur. Uh, it was very fascinating. Well, yeah. I mean, of course, you know, your jazz, what's great about jazz is that to me, jazz represents everything that America is. All right. Meaning it is an art form that gives you freedom. We live in a country that gives us, that was one of the first to give us these kinds of freedoms. America is a melting pot, right? You know, I mean, it's a place where, where nobody, there is no one kind of people that uniquely belong to this place. Everybody belongs. That's its nature. You know what? I mean, it really is an amalgamation of other things. And so jazz by its nature, if we look at studying its roots, going back to New Orleans, and I like to say that because that's how they say it down in New Orleans. All right. But when you study it at its roots, you know, I mean, it comes from, it comes from marches. It comes from ragtime. It comes from quadrilles. It comes from waltzes. It comes from spirituals. It comes from the blues. Um, it comes from popular tunes. It comes from cakewalks. It uh, it literally is a hybrid. It is a mishmash. It is a melting pot of musical styles. And what's fascinating about this is when you look at American culturally, uh, American aspects and that cultural aspect, one of the things that Americans love to do is just put things together that don't fit. Um, and, and that is so true. I mean, you know, what do we do? Tex-Mex. You know, I mean, you know, we, we put things together that this is something that happens in American aspects all over the place. We like to mishmash and, and put things, all kinds of stuff together and come up with something new. It, it isn't something that America owns necessarily, that that approach, but it's something that we do a lot. We do it in architecture. We do it in music. We do it in food. We do it in fashion. You know, Americans just love to put all kinds of stuff together and say, "Ooh, look at this new thing. 
<laughs> and and jazz is one of the iconic demonstrations of that, you know. So it, it's such a wonderfully American thing. And I think that's why so many people that aren't Americans just love it. They think, gosh, how inventive and cool is this? You know, just Definitely, put all these crazy yeah. things together. Definitely. All right. So before we jump into more of the um, jazz ensemble and, you know, actually being in a performance ensembles, I want to talk a little bit about outside of jazz. You know, we encounter those elements in all kinds of music. And I wanted to ask your thoughts on, you know, as music educators, how do we introduce these elements to our students in non-specific jazz ensembles? Well, the first thing I think that any educator should do in the arts well, actually, um, pretty much in any discipline, whether it's whether it's jazz, whether it's it's art, whether it's history, whether it's literature, you need to expose people to to models of what it is. This is the way that we learn. You know, we learn through imitation. You know, the the creative process is one where we we imitate, we assimilate, and then we innovate. Those were the the words of the great jazz soloist Clark Terry. All right. And so the first way to acclimate students to that is to have them listen. You have to listen. You have to listen. You have to listen. Um, the, the audience can't see this, but there's, there's an old joke in the jazz world that says, if you want to learn to swing, you know, you get yourself a stack of Count Basie records this high. And of course, that's where the person lifts up their hand and raises it about four feet off the ground. And so, you know, you, you need that stack of records. And the reason this is so important in music is to have this model of listening is that Music and, and jazz, just like all of music, it's a language, all right? And none of us learned to speak the language of our native land by going out and getting a grammar textbook and a vocabulary textbook and doing worksheets and taking quizzes. We learned by people talking to us, you know, and, and it's just like you think about a baby. A baby babbles. They say nonsense. You know, even sometimes into their toddler years, they're, it's It's nonsense. But what they're doing is they're imitating the sounds, they're imitating the syntax, they're imitating the inflection, you know, they're imitating the speed, the rhythm, they're imitating the volume or the intensity that we speak. And that's how we learn language. Um, I always joke with my students about using an oral example. I said, this is what Teletubbies was all about. You know, Teletubbies was teaching kids what the, what the meters and the sounds of language are. And what's interesting is those, those aspects of sound aren't necessarily unique to any one language. You know, you could have people from completely different parts of the world and children could relate to Teletubbies exactly the same way because what it did was it said, these are the basic constructs that languages put together in. And now we, we learn those things and then we eventually learn the vocabulary and we associate them with people or persons or places or things, you know, or feelings, you know. And so jazz is very much like that. It is a language and you must listen to it to learn it. End of discussion. I would make the exact same argument for classical music, by the way. You want to learn to play Mozart, you better listen to a lot of Mozart. Definitely. And one of the nice things about that in this day and age is we have the resources, you know, whether it's YouTube or other internet sources, that if you want to hear a piece of music, you can probably find it. Uh, it's not like it was 50 years ago where, you know, you really had to have that album in your hand. Uh, nowadays, there's almost no excuse for being able to listen to it. You know, you want to hear that Count Basie chart, you can jump online and probably find hundreds of versions of it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you said that because this is one thing that has changed my teaching over about the last 10 years is the availability of information on platforms like YouTube and the advancement in technology 
in one where I'm always telling my students, it's got to be like this. And I would sing it and I would play it for them, you know, years ago. However, now what I tend to do is I get out my cell phone and I connect it right to the Bluetooth in the classroom. And I say, here's Count Basie. Here's the chart we're playing. Listen to it. And even more so than that, I even have them uh, these days. I haven't played right along with the record. We will play right along with I'll have the whole big band. I will blast those speakers up at Nuclear Forte and we will play right along with Philly Joe Jones back on the drums and the count at the keys and, you know, Johnny Hodges, you know, or whatever. Everybody just ripping in, you know, whatever band we're listening to. We'll we'll just we'll just jam along right with them because it's a language, you know, and you learn it by speaking with others and you learn it by modeling. And modeling while you're doing it is a really, really good way to learn. Yeah, I just had that experience. You're talking about the, the truth too with classical music or other types of music. I was taking a wind band literature course, and one of the great aspects about it is, you know, the instructor could give us scores, but then it was great because right along with it, he gave us links to um, Spotify files where, you know, here were the pieces, here's the score, and then... You can actually listen to it. So you weren't just looking at that piece of uh, sheet music, but you could hear it come to life. And that really made a huge difference in the uh, the learning of the music and understanding yeah. it. People people forget, you know, this, this is one of the disconnects, I think, with musicians in general. Maybe compared to the other art forms, musicians tend to, by and large, be interpretive artists, where a lot of the other art forms, they tend to be a creative artist. You know, I'm, I'm creating a painting or I am... I am, you know, creating something new. I'm creating this movement or this choreography or I'm writing this poem. All right. But musicians tend to be interpreting. They tend to interpret other people's stuff. You know, we tend to play a piece by this person or we tend to play this arrangement. And so what uh, what's really important is that we need to make sure we know what it sounds like. It's music. You have to know what it sounds like. That's really 100 percent. All right. So. Let's talk a little about the concept of starting a jazz ensemble. Let's say whether it's the middle school level, the high school level. Like I said, when I went through the the band program at my small Southwest Ohio school, we didn't have a jazz program. Uh, it wasn't until I think it was my second year of college where we talked about that jazz two ensemble. I think it's important for students to be introduced to jazz at, at some level. Um, you know, you might not be able to put together that huge. Uh, you know, the big band, like that 20-piece big band you mentioned. But I think it's important to have some sort of jazz element, even in the middle school or high school level. So in your opinion, what are the, the benefits to having one? Well, there's there's a lot of reasons to do it. If, if you put that in the context, say you have a band program, whether it's a beginning band program or junior high program or high school program, and the nature of those ensembles is one that's a little more tooty, meaning you have oftentimes more than one person on the same part. When you move to, say, a traditional big band score, it really is one person on a part. You know, So all of a sudden, the, the demands on you to have command over your awareness of rhythm, your awareness of articulation and time, and to, to be able to play something that could be together or independent from somebody else, it's really one on a part. It's much like chamber music or orchestral playing in that fashion. I think that's why sometimes big bands are, are, are a challenge for some people because um, because of that autonomy that you have to have on a part. And then sometimes people's comfort level with the style. But the thing that I would recommend about starting it is start small, okay? And not every approach to jazz needs to be one where, where it's all about this massive improvisation on the moment. You know, I do not be intimidated by that, okay? And, and do not make that the goal. I would say the first goal with whatever you start is to try and make sure that the music feels good, that it has a right style. 
that when you put it in the oven, you bake it, it comes out, it looks and tastes and smells terrific. Okay. So it's all about getting those essential ingredients. There are tons and tons of uh, examples of arrangements and, and music that's out there for like small combo settings. And a lot of those have, uh, a lot of those are written. So maybe they're one voice or two voices or three voices, and you have uh, a mutable instrumentation, meaning it can sort of change and be all over the place. So, you know, if you have your clarinet player, your flute player, your oboe player, your bassoon player, or some other instrument, or your violinist that wants to be in jazz ensemble, you can oftentimes look to these combo arrangements that have flexible instrumentation because they're sort of scored in voices. Here's a top voice, here's a second voice, here's a third voice, and then you've got rhythm section, piano, bass, drums, guitar, or some combination of that that's supporting that. And so I think that's a really good way to begin your program. And as you do that, see how things grow. You may need to elaborate on that. You can make it a little bit better. You can vary up some things. You can say, well, I have two real hot shots, so I'm going to feature them on this one chart and then bring everybody else in on another chart. You know, and it gives you that flexibility to still be teaching them, but to to start small, because starting with a full scale instrumentation can be a real challenge. Um, some schools have the population to pull it off, but it just depends on where you're at and what your program's like and how responsive people are to it. Yeah, I can attest to that. I know I did some teaching in, you know, small rural southeast Ohio and yeah, I started a jazz band there, included you know, some junior high, middle school kids and along with the high school kids, because numbers was an issue. You know, we weren't going to put together a you know 20 piece ensemble. But I also think that's one of the beauties of jazz is it has a lot of flexibility. Um, you can sort of work with the numbers you can get, but it definitely presented some challenges, especially too, because you talk about skill level to have that independence on a part. You know, I had a handful of students that were, were pretty strong independently, but then I had others who maybe weren't. Um, which, you know, sometimes we would do some doubling on, on some parts in, in the big band charts and things. Because as, as an educator, I believe I like to have my ensembles open to whoever wants to be in them, you know, especially at the middle school and high school level. Like, you want that jazz experience? Come into the ensemble. We'll find a way to make it work for you. Because I feel like that at that level, that's what it's all about. They're experiencing things and they're uh, learning about the different styles and the ensembles. Like you said, if you obviously if you have a uh, a bigger program, you might have the uh, the pool of players to pull from, but that's not always the case. And this might be a tricky question too. But I was going to ask you thoughts on the uh, you know how do you recruit your members? I'll just leave it there. Like, well, it's easy to recruit people when something is good or they know they're going to have fun. You know, I mean, and that pretty much goes for everything. If they perceive that something is quality, meaning it's worth their time, they'll be interested. And if they think they're going to have fun, they'll probably be interested. There might be other factors, you know, that typically motivate adolescents, and we don't need to get on all those. <laughs> but the point is, the point is, I, I think generally speaking, that if if you try and make the group fun, that they have a really good time, and that and that it's quality, that's really important. And and it's something I really work hard at in in my groups is to try and make sure that people are enjoying themselves when when they're when they're in the group. I mean, I really work hard at trying to make sure that they're having a good time. Even when we run into a challenging moment where we need to address a, a serious issue, I, I try and do so in a way that's um, respectful of them, but yet challenging to them. But they but they also, it's very real. You know, um, you can't you can't separate yourself from the students. I'm always telling them, you know, I said, I don't make any noise up here. It's all you. You know, the band is you. It's your band. You know, I'm just up here. 
so I, I try and remind them that it's about them. But so for recruiting specifically, like I said, I think uh, I think you just need to make sure that you can have a good product. You also mean, may need to go out there and yell it and sell it a little bit. If you wanted to start a program, one of the things I might do is one, maybe bring in some jazz professionals and have them demonstrate for the students. Or you might call up Dave Cosmina and said, hey, Dave, <laughs> can you bring the ONU jazz band to my school? I want to start a jazz program. Can your kids come and play a program for us? I say, sure. Just tell me when and where. You definitely. Know? So um, I think that's definitely one way because students relate to other students well. So when they see people that that look like them, you know, meaning they're younger, they're not, you know, I mean, I got, you know, gazillions of gray hair, what's left on my head. Um, you know, I don't look like them. So but when they can see their peers uh, doing it, I think that would probably get them excited. Definitely. And I've, and I've definitely seen that work firsthand uh, with some other ensembles. It's all a vocal program that successfully did that approach uh, with acapella groups. I know one of the challenges for me being the you know, starting a jazz ensemble and being involved in the instrumental program was, you know, when we think of the classic band, school band, uh, putting together a rhythm section. You, know, you think of your brass, woodwinds, and percussion. Okay, maybe you have a percussionist to throw on the drum set, but how about that guitar player? How about that bass player? You know, the, the piano player. Those are things that maybe I don't have sitting right there in my classroom. And I know for me, that was a challenge, but also a blessing in the fact that it uh, allowed me to reach out to other areas. You know, we had kids in the schools that played guitar or bass, you know, in their garage bands or rock bands that, you know, as long as I was able to sell it, like you said, is something that would be fun for them and something different to experience. I was able to pull in these kids who were not part of our traditional band program, you know, play guitar, to play bass. I think when I started out, I had to recruit my piano player from another teacher in the district. But eventually, I did have a student who played the piano with us. So those were some challenges, especially in the small school setting. But uh, but allowed me to reach out to other uh, elements of the school body uh, that weren't part of our traditional band program. Yeah, you always got to think outside the box. And there's always going to be students that want to that want they're going to want to play in a rock band. Okay, and I think that's great. I think that should start to be incorporated more in music curricula. One of the ways to reach out to them is say, listen, rock and roll has its roots in jazz, period. And geez, all you got to do is is play a little bit of Eric Clapton, you know, or something like that. And also you're like, oh, my gosh, Eric Clapton's doing Bessie Smith songs from the 1920s. Or you think about the Beatles. The Beatles are absolutely re rooted in jazz. In fact, the Beatles are rooted in skiffle music. And uh, I, I have a good friend of mine who's uh, he's he's up in his 80s and he, he lives in Toronto, but he was he was a Londoner. He was born in Britain. And uh, he was playing in a group called the Ken Barton Jazz Band in the, the late 50s and early 60s. And he told me the story. He goes, he goes, Cosy, we're out in Germany, something like this, sometime playing a gig. And all of a sudden we show up to the show and there's the Beatles as the interval band. So basically he was saying that jazz was the popular music of the day and the Beatles were the interval band. But you, the, but there's this this whole idea that uh, there's so much rock and roll that has all of its roots in jazz. I mean, gosh, you think about Stevie Wonder or Billy Preston or Michael Jackson. I mean, it's just all over the place. Gospel, jazz, blues, and a lot of these things get dumped into a large bucket. So definitely think out the box. Reach out to all those kids because knowing how to play jazz is not going to make you worse at playing rock and roll. I can right. guarantee it will make you better. Okay. I can guarantee it. Let's talk a little bit about improvisation. I know you mentioned it a little bit before that, you know, don't feel like you got to start with that or that it, that's got to be a huge part of what you're doing. Because I know could, even for me, it's like it's still today, here we are, uh, however many years later, we're not even going to go there. But uh, talking about <laughs> the, the, the comfort level 
you know, not all of our students are going to be comfortable with like the idea of improvisation. So where do you begin with that? How do you get students a little more comfortable with it or, or introduce them to that on a very basic level? I witnessed one of the most amazing classroom examples of teaching improvisation in Fresno, California. And I would watch it every year. I always played this, this early jazz Fresno Mardi Gras festival. I, I played for about 20 some years now. And there was a guy, I think his name was Ed. I can't remember his last name. He was teaching sixth and seventh graders and eighth graders. Maybe they were seventh and eighth graders. And he would have a room full of about 30 kids in his band class. And there was no music. There was no music in front of them. They didn't have any music. All right. And this was his jazz band. And so what he would do was, he was a tuba player, but he would sit down and he'd play string bass, or sometimes he'd pick up the trombone and play trombone, or sometimes he'd play the tuba. And he would have one kid go back to the drum set, and they would just simply lay down a nice groove. So they would put a nice soft four beat on the pedal, and then they would lay into the ride cymbal and just get a nice swing and ride cymbal beat, kind of open quarter notes, not too busy. And then everybody else would imitate. So he would lay down a groove just going spang, spang, a-lang, spang, a-lang, spang, a-lang. And then he would teach them a pattern. And so he would play something like bum, bum, bum. And the kids would play back. Bum, bum, bum. Then he would play. Bop, 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 bop. Then they'd play back. Bop, 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 bop. Then he'd play. Bop, 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 bop. Then they'd play. Bop, 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 bop. And so what he was doing was he was teaching them vocabulary, the vocabulary of improvisation. And that vocabulary, the best vocabulary to start off with is what's called the pentatonic scale. So do, re, mi, sol, and la. And if you're in major, you start on do, and it's three notes. For example, C, D, E, G, A. If it's in minor, you start on la, which is A, and it's A, C, D, E, G. And the blues scale is a slight derivation of that. And so you can take a pattern that's in major, a pattern that's in minor, and he would just start teaching them these patterns back and forth. And they really developed a lot of vocabulary. And he got more complex as, as the grades got older. And I was amazed because then he would teach them a tune that'd be a blues tune or something like this. And they would all learn the melody by ear and they would know the chords. You know, usually there's only three chords. And then these kids would start improvising. But he nurtured them into the, the way we learn language, which is imitation. Just like when you talk to a baby, you're like, dada, mama. And they go, dada, mama. Okay? You know, they imitate you. Music is a language. We need to stop thinking that we need to learn music the way we learn other subjects. We need to learn music the way you and I learned language. And that is by ear through imitation, call and response. And so that's the first thing I would do for teaching improvisation is I would make all the percussionists play mallets and put, and they would be lucky if they'd be, get to be the set, the set person, you know, <laughs> so you have to develop a little bit of chops to know how to teach, you know, a nice, good swing and groove, but everybody plays mallets. Um, you could have some kids on some auxiliary percussion, depending on how many percussionists you have. And it doesn't always have to be a swing beat. You could teach them a samba beat, you know, bum, ba-tum, 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 ba-tum. you know, you could teach them a bossa nova beat. You could teach a rock beat and you can play all these patterns over all those different beats. But when you do this little call and response with the students, what you can do is not only work on their sense of ear training, you can work on their sense of pitch retention. They're they're remembering the the they're remembering the notes you do. They're remembering the rhythms, 
And more importantly than that, they're hearing your articulation. And articulation in jazz is absolutely critical. It, it is because in jazz, we have to think about rhythm at the beginning, the middle, and the end of the note. And so the way we articulate is really important. And if you don't know how to articulate jazz, go back to my first comment and get yourself a stack of Basie records about four <laughs> feet high, and you'll learn pretty much almost all the vocabulary you need to learn. Or you pull out a Louis Armstrong record, any one of them, anything he ever did, and it's going to be the gold standard. You know, Armstrong is really the Mozart of jazz. Out of, out of all the people that have been around, he was really the was really the first and he's one of the few examples where he uh everything he played you just can't conceive of it of it happening any other way and uh and it's funny that i i thought of that because i've always felt that way about armstrong and then i read uh gunther schuller's book early jazz and he said the same thing i thought well if gunther said it then it, then i must be on the right track there you go so yeah modeling i would sit there and i would demonstrate for him put the rhythm section on and have everybody model back and forth and you'd be surprised how fast they get comfortable this is what i do when i teach a jazz improv class at our onu summer music camp we only have four days and in four days i get them improvising you know and this is the method that i use that i learned from this knockout music educator dude in in fresno california it works great i've had so much luck with it so i would definitely try that awesome so let's move on from there. I think that um, that's a great, actually, some great advice for starting improvisation. I, and it really goes back to the language thing. So let's talk about the idea of combos, uh, sort of the, the advantages to having combos or the challenges, or I should say, and the challenges <laughs> to having combos. The advantage is also the challenge. It's one on a part. Right. The... Um... Gosh, how do I say this? The the, the hard thing about combos is um, it depends if you're playing charts or not. If you're playing charts, then it might be relatively structured. And I think some people are comfortable with that. If you're not playing charts and maybe just playing off of a lead sheet, say you've got some real books, then you have to do a little bit of work to teach them what the roadmap is. What's the form? You know, jazz does not, combo jazz does not, it's not random. Okay, it isn't that they just get up and start playing something. It's that uh, there may or may not be a piano intro, and then everybody goes through, if we're talking bebop and beyond, everybody goes through by playing the melody together. They play the head of the tune. And then usually there's a break at the end of that, and someone takes a little solo break, a two-bar break or so, into their first solo. And then they'll go as many times as they go. And then you run through all the soloists in the group. And then usually at the end, they go ahead and trade fours with the drums. And that usually alternates between each each person in the group. And then uh, and then you play the head out. And usually you do a triple ending, which is you take the last phrase. And after you've played it once, you go back and play that last phrase again. And then you play it a third time and you're done. And that's usually a pretty standard form for going through a combo um, when there's no music. There's all kinds of variations. Another one might be you get to the end and you cycle the chord progression at the end, you know, one, six, two, five, one, over and over and over and over and over again until you finally build things up and uh, get some excitement going. So the challenge to it is that it's not as structured, but actually it is structured. You have to teach them the structure. Students are really good at following directions. You know, students, especially young students, my gosh, they are like literal. Like you can tell them something and they'll like do exactly that thing. <laughs> you're thinking, yeah. you not understand sarcasm yet? No. no. <laughs> you know, so you need to you need to tell them what to do. You need to be clear. So 
part of having a good combo is the director doing a little bit of homework. And this has happened my whole career. You know, there have been times where I've been put in teaching environments that I don't want to say I wasn't comfortable in them, but maybe I wasn't as comfortable as I as I was with other things. And it's like anything else in life. It's trial by fire. You figure it out by doing it. And that's the message that I would tell those students as well, not only for the educator learning how to do it, but the student says, you, you figure it out because you're doing it. You figure it out because you try it. You have to be willing to make mistakes. You have to be willing to make lots of mistakes. I have a motto, and that's loud and proud. Play it loud and proud, because if you play it loud and proud, you're going to know when you're right, and you're going to know when you're wrong. You know, And that's really important to figure out what doesn't work. Yeah, I think that's really important in jazz, especially with uh, those students that are, are beginning beginning jazzers, that they've got to get comfortable with making those mistakes because they've they've got to get comfortable with trying it, you know, get, giving it a go. Um, so I I definitely think that's an important concept there. Let's talk about technology. We already mentioned a little bit how the internet gives us a plethora of resources for listening to music. Are, are there any other? Uh, technological resources out there that you can think of that can be a benefit to educators, both their you know, students in the classroom or in the rehearsal, um, and even outside of it? you got any f- favorite technological things? Man, there are so many. So the first thing I'm going to tell you is, is back in the Stone Age, the technology that they used was whatever was happening, you know, meaning was it a record, you know, or was it an existing recording of a group? And that is one of the things I mentioned that earlier that I have my big band play along with Count Basie or Duke Ellington or Stan Kenton or whomever we're playing, you know, Gordon Goodman, whatever. And I would recommend that for learning as a soloist as well. Play along with the record. Some people will try and transcribe a solo. You, I mean, you can do that, you know, and there's a lot of benefit in, in doing that. But I, I play along with records all the time. You know, if I want to play along with Sidney Bechet or Louis Armstrong, I'll throw on a record. I even throw on the 78s. I've got an old Victrola and I'll throw on a 78 and I'll sit there and, you know, play along with the 1940 recording of down in honky tonk town, you know, and just let her rip with pops, you know? So, you know, I, I, I like to do that. Uh, one of the great things that then developed uh, in the seventies, Jamie Abrasold's play along tracks where he basically recorded pretty much everything. And that is a really good baseline because those are all live musicians and everything's set up really well. It's a terrific way to learn additional digital resources. I mean, people are familiar with band in a box uh, iReal Pro is a really terrific app you can get on your phone, and it's not very expensive. And iReal Pro will have backing tracks that you can you can find other people's libraries of tunes. All right, you can download libraries of tunes, all different kinds of genres, styles, and and literally do essentially what you would do in Band in a Box, which is where it's it's a bunch of sort of MIDI algorithms that give you piano, bass, drums, background with chord changes. And I know on iReal Pro, I mean you can I mean you can transpose it, you can have melodies in there, you can have it's it's a really terrific resource, you know, and it's super easy to use pretty much on any any phone platform these days, you know. So I, I generally if I have a student that needs to work on some changes on a big band chart i'll say well go ahead and throw your changes in whatever key you're in you know and then you designate oh this is an e-flat alto part you put that in there and it'll it'll transpose it to concert pitch in terms of how it sounds and you can play right along with it same thing on the trumpet so i'll have them practice along with um some iReal pro backing tracks and that's uh, that's a, a, a pretty nifty way to do it all right. Yeah, definitely tons of resources out there. Just got to look for probably any element that you're looking for in, in, in the world of jazz or really any type of music. So, Dave, as we're coming towards the end here, you have any uh, any final thoughts on the, the world of jazz and how it relates oh, to our man. music education? 
keeping it short. (laughs) You know, um, gosh, there's so many things to think about. I mean, first off, I, I think every music educator should challenge themselves to embrace jazz and to advocate for jazz. I'm not saying that you need to become a jazz musician, but but you do owe it to your students to be knowledgeable about it, whether you are a stylist in it or not. I, I look at it this way: if you're a if you're a culinary chef, you know, and you're teaching all these young chefs what to do, there might be some dish that you just really don't like. But your young chef students need to learn how to make it. You know, you might be like, I hate creme brulee, but dang it, you need to know how to make creme brulee when you get that job in that five-star restaurant. So you have to look at your job as a teacher the same way, that you you need to teach them about the, the great musicians of jazz, and you need to challenge yourself to understand it if you don't already. And it's like everything else I've ever found to be true, that once you familiarize yourself with it, you suddenly like it more. I mean, how many times have we had students that read a chart or pull out a piece of music and they're like, oh, I hate this. This is terrible. We don't like it. You know, and then you actually teach it to them and they get to know it and they start to do it correctly. And all of a sudden they love it. Oh, you know, yeah, we are weird time. creatures of habit. We, we like what we know. We like what's familiar. And so my challenge is for those people that might not be that familiar with jazz, become familiar with it. It's a remarkable art form. And there's a lot to be learned for it. Jazz is absolutely central to American society. If you trace the evolution of jazz, the messages in jazz aren't just about music. I mean, they are about our society. They are about freedom and oppression. And they are about inclusion and exclusion. And there's a lot a lot of really serious topics that jazz gets on it. In fact, jazz is very much an answer to what what's happened in American history, you know. And that's one of the things that the Ken Burns documentary was actually really good about. It was it was more of a social documentary than necessarily a musical documentary. I mean, he did talk about musical innovations, but but he really talked about how jazz interacted with society and why why people said what they had to say and how they did it through jazz. Very much so. so yes. So, yeah, I mean, jazz is is unique to to America. It's so important to what we do. It really is the roots of all American music. I'll say one more random little thing, which is kind of fun about that. And one of the things that jazz has that all American music has, whether it's John Philip Sousa, whether it's Leonard Bernstein, whether it's Elvis Presley, whether it's Michael Jackson, you know, whether it's it's, you know, Madonna, you know, I don't care anything. But the one thing that jazz and all American music has, it's this. All American music is about this pulse. It's about this beat. And there's all these variations of this beat that are out there. And it's something that's really unifying. You know, you think about listening to West Side Story, and so much of the music is just about this great little click that goes through there. You listen to a John Philip Sousa march, and it's all about this click. You listen to a Scott Joplin rag, and it's all about this click. You hear Count Basie or Duke Ellington or or, or, or John Coltrane or anybody, and it's all about this, this sense of pulse. You hear Michael Jackson. You hear, I mean, everything in American music is about a sense of pulse this driving pulse, this building things up. We're always trying to build the music up like you have in the trio of the Sousa March. The same thing happens in jazz. The same thing happens in pop music. It's really all the same. It's just different. But what makes it the same is that it's American. That's why it's important. Definitely. All right, David, we're going to wrap it up here. And I thank you for coming on to Music and Casts with us. I hope I get a chance to talk to you again. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
All right, thank you, listeners, for tuning into this episode of Music and Casts. We look forward to you joining us again in future episodes as we explore topics relevant to the field of music education. 